In 2017, Rod Dreyer's new book called The Benedict Option became an immediate bestseller, reaching number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. The book basically has two big ideas. Big idea number one, social hostility and legal restrictions will close down many Christian institutions. It will prevent many Christians from getting jobs and limit aspects of their public life throughout the United States. This will happen within a generation or so. Big idea number two. Due to a lack of meaningful discipleship in local churches and it being replaced by a growing consumer culture, we should expect to see a collapse of Christian beliefs and practices within a generation or so. Does it sound surprising to you that a book primarily focused on discipleship to Jesus Christ became an overnight bestseller, reaching the top 10 of the New York Times bestseller list. I personally was a bit surprised until I saw an article about how this book was promoted. It explained the following. Big idea number one, namely that there's going to be hostility and more legal restrictions and the closing down of Christian institutions and Christians not getting jobs, etc., etc., The portion of the book that's devoted to this claim is 20% of the book. The portion of the journalistic coverage of the book devoted to that portion was 90%. The portion of social media buzz, pros and cons, devoted to that first claim about the hostility that's going to come was about 98%. When people talked about the book, they talked about the minor point the one about hostility. How much should those who believe that Jesus is Lord be concerned about that first point? This author who wrote the article said, maybe about 5% of our concerns. But the second point, the the point that made up 80% of the book, which was all about discipleship to Jesus Christ, it received 10% of the journalistic coverage in the media, 2% of the social media coverage. And how much should those who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord be concerned about discipleship in the local church? Well, 100%. In other words, as I read that article, I thought, well, no wonder this book became an overnight success. Fear sells. I recently came across another article that said, imagine this scenario. You're a big movie producer with a little bit of cash in your pocket ready to invest. What kind of film do you want to make to make the best return on your investment? Hands down, without a second thought, make a horror film. It's the best deal in Hollywood. Horror films are the best return on investment because they cost less than the big action hero movies but consistently bring in millions and even billions of dollars with each movie. Of the 30 movies in the last 10 years that made the biggest net profit, half of them were horror films. Fear sells. Christian books become New York Times bestsellers when the media drives the fear. It drives TV ratings in your local news stations. It sells billions of dollars in movie tickets every year. What's really interesting, though, is that the number one best-selling book of all time, namely the Bible, does not sell fear. Did you know that the most repeated instruction in out, throughout the whole Bible, 
the most common command that you could find if you added all of them up is not love your neighbor as yourself or love God or go to church or pray or some sort of religious behavior or give more money to the church, even though some preachers might talk as if that is the most repeated command. The most repeated command in all of the Bible is do not be afraid. Fear not. The passage that we're going to look at today in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will say this command three times of its many occurrences throughout Scripture. So follow along as I read. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. That's 815 in the black Bibles for those that are using those around you. Matthew chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 26 through 33 and focus on these verses for our time this morning. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Many of you know as a church we've been going through the gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, section by section. We do this because we do not want to be fearful of what the Bible might have to say. Some churches like to skip over hard truths or difficult teachings, but it is the aim of Embassy Church to consistently proclaim from the rooftops the whole counsel of God, at least to the best of our abilities. So we're making our way slowly through Jesus' second big teaching section in the Gospel of Matthew. In a very shorthand way to summarize the whole Gospel of Matthew, it alternates from telling you stories about Jesus and then teachings from Jesus. So stories and then sayings, stories and then sayings. This pattern happens five different times until the end of the book. Right now, we find ourselves in the second section of stories and sayings of Jesus, more particularly the sayings portion of the Gospel of Matthew. If we wanted to be cute or clever, we might call this section similar to Sermon on the Mount in section one. Section two is Sermon on the Mission. Today, we'll be looking at just this paragraph that I read for you from verses 26 through 33. Hopefully, it wasn't hard to see that the big idea here is overcoming the disciples' fear of the mission that they're being on with Jesus giving them courage and boldness in the face of persecution. For those of you that were here last week, or if you read the whole chapter at some point, and you see this whole message as maybe one big sermon, you'll see why the disciples desperately needed to hear these words of encouragement after the previous paragraph that we covered last week. If you just turn your eyes up to verses 16 through 25, you'll see Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And again, notice the emphasis there, I, Jesus, I am sending, I'm putting you into that environment. And what's going to happen? You're going to be arrested, beaten, whipped, dragged, betrayed by your family, hated by all kinds of people, driven out of towns and need to flee for safety, maligned, mistreated, misunderstood. Some will call you satanic or demonic, beuzzable in 
the previous verse. That was, by the way, last week's message on Christmas Sunday. Merry Christmas again. I did have a few people comment, well, that was a different Christmas message than I'm used to hearing, especially when we had all these extra extended family members and guests visiting us this last week. But this week, I think it should be a little more chipper or cheery to some extent. This week's message will focus on four reasons that Jesus gives that are quite plain from the text. I think you could come up with them yourself, but let's just walk through them together. Four reasons why you should not be afraid of anything that would come as Jesus sends us as his followers out into the world. Reason number one, do not be afraid because the truth will triumph. Jesus says in the very first part of verse 26, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. First question, who's the them? So have no fear of them clearly being linked to the previous passage. That's why the word so is there. It's to help you see that he's still talking about what he was just covering. All the people who will hate the followers of Jesus that we looked at last week that I just recounted. So, have no fear of them. Why? And then look at the next word. For or because. Here's the reason I'm going to give you not to be afraid. Because what is being covered up or hidden will be revealed or made known. The disciples spent a lot of time, as you read the Gospels, in kind of dark alleys, in secret, hidden, not going around and making a big deal. Anytime there was a big ruckus, Jesus would slip away. Anytime there was somebody that wanted to go and tell who Jesus was as the Messiah, he would say, don't tell them that I am the Messiah. Jesus is therefore whispering to them in the dark, but he tells them, when I send you out, you are to proclaim and shout from the rooftops. First century homes, by the way, Middle Eastern homes even today, have flat roofs. They don't have to worry about building homes that have to worry about rainfall or snowfall in the same way that we do. Sam and Erica told me while we were visiting Dubai a year ago that they grew up in the Middle East and they used to sleep on their flat roofs of their homes because it was nice and cool outside and that everybody had a nice flat roof. And so imagine sleeping on our roofs. We'd like roll and tumble down, right? So imagine flat roofs. And it could be that Jesus is just talking about this literally, like, Climb up onto a roof and shout and gather an audience and get a crowd, do some outdoor preaching. Or he could just be talking figuratively, like this creates a big megaphone of like getting on top of a roof. So anywhere you go, speak boldly and confidently. That clearly is what I think Jesus is getting at here one way or the other. Jesus, like, just like the first disciples, we are to be bold, share the gospel of Jesus. But we don't. Let's be honest. Not as often as we probably think we should or often feel guilty of. And the reason is we're afraid. There is no question that fear is one of the biggest obstacles to us sharing the gospel of Jesus on a regular basis. It's one of the main reasons why we're silent in our workplace or our neighborhood or our friends at school or the people in our sports teams or wherever we go. The danger that Jesus is referring to here is the fear that we might have from knowing that if we speak very clearly about Jesus and openly and boldly, well, we might get into some trouble. And how does Jesus suggest you overcome that fear? Whether the Benedict Options prediction is right or not, I don't know in terms of the prediction that within a generation or now, you're not going to lose your job and Christian institutions are going to get shut down. But hopefully you've started to see that even in America, Hostility toward the Christian faith is ever-increasing. So will you believe 
that truth will triumph. This is what Jesus suggests for how us, we will overcome this fear. The disciples of Christ will be vindicated. Yes, they may be dragged into courts. Yes, they may be mistreated in the darkness. But God will ultimately bring evil into the light. Do you believe that God will make things right? That all wrongs will be made right? That things will work out in the end? Some of us may be in this room, maybe we know somebody in our lives, where things are hiding in the darkness. Whether it's verbal, physical, sexual abuse. Friends, this needs to be brought into the light. One of the important ministries of the local church is to bring truth into the light and bring evil out of the darkness. And so if you're here today and you're struggling in these ways, we have elders, we have leaders, we have men and women who are more than capable to help you walk in the light. Do not leave these things in the darkness. We do not need to be afraid of having the truth brought into the light. It eventually will be. Take courage now to speak the truth now as a promise of faith, knowing that God will eventually bring it out into the light. Some of you might be familiar with what happened last year throughout social media and the Me Too movement. You should realize that all those victims that spoke out about their abusers is just a small sampling of what will come when Jesus brings all things into the light. Therefore, we do not need to be afraid of people getting away with evil or injustice. We do not need to be afraid of politicians or businessmen who prosper now based on their lies and deceitful practices that take advantage of their workers. We don't need to be afraid of police officers or government officials who abuse their God-given authority and power for their own financial gain or comfort. We do not need to be afraid of persecution that will come when laws change in America that make it more and more difficult for you to talk about what is true and right. The truth will triumph. In fact, it already has. Jesus was wrongly accused. Jesus was mistreated. Jesus was abused in the darkness. It seemed like evil had won on that Good Friday day, but Sunday morning came, and Jesus' accusers and abusers did not get away with evil. They did not get away with murder. Three days later, God rose from the dead. Forty days later, Jesus was vindicated and raised to the highest position in the heavenly realm. If this is how the triumph of truth happens with Jesus, then follower of Christ, be assured that the triumph of truth will happen for you. God does vindicate his people. So the first and most obvious reason is, don't be afraid. Truth will triumph. Reason number two, do not be afraid because death was defeated. Look at the next portion of our text. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The worst thing that can happen to you as you go out on mission for Jesus is that they could kill you. Aren't you encouraged by that? I mean, let's just imagine that your pastor gets up here and says, friends, let's all go to North Africa, quit our jobs, take our families, and you don't need to worry. You don't need to be concerned. What's the worst that could happen? You could die. How does that sound? Sound like good news? Sound like a wise, faithful pastor? Unless dying is great gain, unless you have no reason to be afraid of death, because to live is Christ. This does sound weird, though, doesn't it? The worst thing that could happen to you is dying. Everything we do in our life is to prevent ourselves from dying. But you're not supposed to be afraid of dying. 
And what makes the logic even more weird and strange is when you notice the way Jesus argues this point. Do not be afraid of dying. Instead, you should be afraid of something, more importantly, someone. The one who oversees both body and soul and all of existence, both heaven and hell. In other words, fear God. Do not be afraid of men. Fear in this biblical sense of fearing God is a very broad word. It includes the idea of being in awe, to be controlled or mastered or worshiping someone. When we fear people, we make them as needy or we're codependent or we make them an idol. Ed Welch helpfully says in his book, When people are big and God is small, that the fear of man is no respecter of persons. It might be called codependency by educated adults. It might be called peer pressure by teens or shyness with a child. But whatever it is called, it betrays the same idolatrous heart. Fear of man is always a part of a triad that includes fear of man, unbelief, and disobedience. My friends, in what ways has your fear of what other people think about you or what they might do to you or say about you revealed your unbelief and led to your disobedience? Think about it. What areas of your life are you clutching so tightly and safely for security and comfort to protect yourself from some sort of harm that you're afraid of? Is it with your finances? In what ways is your spending protecting you or yourself instead of trusting in God? How about decision-making? Is there a decision that you know you're supposed to make in your life? Your conscience is bearing witness to it, The Bible is telling you, friends are giving you counsel, but you're afraid of the unknown and you're not sure how other people might respond if you make that right decision. Parents, how does this truth shape all of your parenting? Are you modeling this for your children? Are you encouraging them, first and foremost, to fear God more than they fear other people? For those of us that aren't married or where you don't have children, If you're single, are you afraid of being alone or rejected or never getting married? So as an act of disobedience, you don't trust God being enough for you or the church being your community. And so therefore you run to other people or other things. And you know that some of those decisions are ruining your life, but you keep doing it. My friends, this is a small sampling of what discipleship in the local church should look like. Conversations like this on a weekly basis. I'm just trying to get the ball rolling, and my hope and prayer is that you will continue it throughout the rest of the week. Do not be afraid, Jesus says. Death has been defeated. Christ has conquered, and so the New Testament says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? That's reason number two. Do not be afraid of death. Number three, do not be afraid because God sovereignly controls everything and will be with you. Do not be afraid because God sovereignly controls everything and he will be with you. This might be the sweetest portion of the text for my meditations, even though point four does sweeten the cake a little bit more as well. So, much to look forward to. Look at this text in verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. The basic idea should be quite plain, isn't it? 
The suffering that we undergo as Christians and followers of Christ, especially in speaking the truth and representing Jesus on the earth, is not because God is disinterested or unfamiliar or unaware of what's going on or turned his back and said, oh, oh, that's what happened? Sorry, I wasn't paying attention. He knows. He's there. He's with you the whole time. If he's there when sparrows fall from the sky, then why would he not be there when you fall in any particular way, whether it's sin or whether it's persecution? Are you not more valuable than sparrows? I know it's 2018, almost 2019, and that that point needs to be made a little more clearly. There's things in America called people for ethical treatment of animals, and they would tell you, no, you're not. Sparrows are just as, more, just as important as humans. The Bible is quite clear. You are more valuable than animals. Yes, you are more valuable than sparrows. Sparrows would have been, as you can see, sold for a penny. It's just the word for the smallest amount of money that they had in the first century. So if God knows and cares about the smallest and cheapest of animals, then of course he knows and cares about you. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. I don't know if any of you do catechisms. If you did as a kid growing up or you teach them to your children, I encourage that if you don't do any catechisms, but if you want to just do one, one question and answer with your family or with yourself as a helpful teaching, this would be the one I would encourage you to do. It's from the Heidelberg Catechism. First question, what is your comfort in life and death? The answer given in the catechism, which is worthy of all our memorization, is beautiful that I am not my own, that with my soul and body and life and death, but I belong to Jesus Christ, my faithful Savior, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied all my sins. He delivered me from the power of the devil, and he so preserves so that without the will of my Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, all things must be subservient to my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready to live for him. That is your comfort in life and in death. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, and not a hair from your head will fall without the will of the Father. The Lord would know even more about you than you know about yourself. Do you know how many hairs you have on your head? I'm getting closer the more they fall out. The text does not promise that the hairs will stay on your head, fellow bald brothers in the room. But it should astonish us that the Lord knows us at this moment so intimately that he counts the very hairs on our head. Do you marvel at the detailed knowledge that God has for his people and his creation? The way that he particularly makes mention of the smallest matters that you and I would, I, I would often hear this. Well, that doesn't matter to God. He, he only cares about the big things that go on. That's a lie. That is not true. That is not what Jesus is teaching us right now. God does care about even the smallest of matters that we often consider unimportant. Every moment of your day, every part of your body. Nobody knows what God knows. If you have a sick child, as, have I, as I've had the last couple weeks, you watch over them. 
night and day. Every little fact is kind of noted. They look a little pale. Their appetite isn't quite there. Every symptom is carefully jotted down or recorded. As Charles Spurgeon said, If God so values me and so knows me that he counts the very hairs on my head, ought I not to give my whole self even to the minutest detail? Should I not give him not merely my head, but my hair like that sinful woman did, and unbound her hair so she could make it a towel to wipe his feet with her tears? Ought we not to consecrate and devote to God the very least things as well as the greatest things? Doesn't the Scriptures also say that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So when the inventory was taken, the Lord did not leave a hair of your head out of his catalog. Certainly he has not left your hair to you, Christian women, to indulge for vanity or pride. Every strand of your hair is the Lord's. Men, he does not leave you in any part of your talents or your mind or your body. Your whole self is altogether his, so take stock of it. And he expects you to use it in practical devotion to him. He observes all that we do, even the little things. He knows the minor matters. We are under the law of Christ, and that law covers the whole man and woman. There's practical applications, I think, for sure. If he cares about all of us, then all of us should be cared for him. Do not be afraid. Knowing that he cares about us in these ways, he loves us, he knows, he's with you, and this should give you confidence and boldness, even in the face of death. Think even how the Lord Jesus himself, on the night that he was betrayed, took comfort in the fact that he said, you could not do this except that it was appointed by the hand of the Father in heaven. He said to his captors, you could not have done this if it was not appointed by the hand of the Father. Two sparrows can't fall apart from the hand of the Father. The death of Jesus can't happen apart from the hand of the Father. And so too, your suffering will not happen apart from the hand of the Father. Sovereignly allowing, ordaining, governing, being with, and using whatever evil that happens in this world for his good purposes. That's reason number three. Finally, reason four, do not be afraid because Jesus is our advocate. This comes in the last two verses of our text. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The idea here is that Jesus will acknowledge. He will confess is another way to translate that word acknowledge. He will defend as our advocate or as our representative before God the Father if we are his in Christ. So therefore, there is a double encouragement. Don't fear because you are Jesus and Jesus is yours and he will defend you before the Father. But at the same time, Persevere in your faith. Don't give up believing and holding on to Christ. For those of you who are Christians, you should see this as an encouragement to persevere in your faith of Jesus. For those of you who are not Christians, you should see that if you want to stand before the Father, the God of creation, notice the language here. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, 
I will acknowledge before the Father. Jesus sees that the truth comes down to this simple decision. What are you going to do with Jesus? Will you receive him? Will you accept him? Will you believe on him and follow him wholeheartedly with total allegiance? If you don't, then you will be rejected by Jesus before the Father. I don't think it would be put any more plain in terms of the black and white comparison here. So friends, this is not just a one-time decision. This is a life that's lived in continual acknowledgement of Jesus in everyday life. So when you go to school, when you're on campus, when you're at people in the workplace, in your neighborhood, do they see a public confessing and identifying with Jesus? Do people know that you are a Christian just because you go to church or because you have explained to them how he has saved your soul from the clutches of sin through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and his vindication to the right hand of the Father? Is that public knowledge in your circle of influence, not just implied? Whatever Jesus is to you on earth, you will be to him on the day of judgment. If he is dear and precious to you, then you will be dear and precious to him. If you think very highly of him, then he will think very highly of you. I think especially for our children in the room, think through who would be the coolest person in the world that you would want to know. Is it a TV star? Is it an actor or actress type person? Is it a sports figure? A lot of times parents were included in this. We get wrapped up with, man, if I could meet so-and-so, if I could know them and they knew me, how cool would that be? Not just shake their hand, but like we were friends. What if you were friends with Buzz Lightyear? What if you were friends with somebody like that, whoever that person might be? I'm just kind of showing myself with where my kids are at. Anyway, think through that a little bit. What kind of popularity or dignity or respect do you think you'd have if the most cool and popular and most dignified person in the world knows you? I asked this to someone just recently, sitting down over lunch. I said, who would that be for you? And they named some famous person. I said, if somebody came up to you shortly after you were reminded of your deep friendship with this famous person, and they said, man, you're nothing, you're worthless, wouldn't you think to yourself, I don't care what you think. This person cares that I'm awesome and they think that I'm great. How much more then if God, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, stands before the Father's throne, he looks at you and he says, stand back, angels. Stand back, cherubim and seraphim. Make way. Here is my son, my friend, my brother, my sister. What if that's what God said about you, acknowledged you before the Father? Why would it matter what anybody said or did here on this earth in regards to you? Father, I confess him before you in heaven. If Jesus says that, I confess her, then what else do you need? What more confidence could you be given? You could do anything with that kind of confidence, even stare death in the face. In just a moment, we're going to sing these words. Before the throne of God above, 
have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Do not be afraid. If Jesus is our advocate, if he represents us in the heavenlies, human life has now gone into heaven. Last week we considered the marvel of the incarnation. God becoming man. Man taking on flesh. This week yet again we need to meditate on the idea of man, God, going into heaven. Not just him coming down, but him rising above and representing us. If you are seated with Christ, and if Christ is seated at the Father's right hand, then what should you fear? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world to rescue sinners like us who fear men, who fear what people think about us. We're driven by it. God, we thank you for the mercy of Jesus, the tender compassion, the knowledge of God to know every little detail of our lives and care so intimately about us. We just want to praise you for that. We want to thank you for revealing yourself to us and not leaving us in the dark. And that we can now stand on the rooftops and stand in front of pulpits and preach and proclaim and announce that you are good, that you are sovereign, and that you know us inside and out better than we know ourselves. We want to thank you for the good news of Christ's gospel, his coming and redeeming, his rising and restoring, his being vindicated and every wrong being made right in his life, giving us a picture of what will happen for us. I pray for any of us who are not in Christ, who are not clinging and acknowledging and living and publicly declaring with boldness that Christ is the only way. I pray that they would be convicted of their sin now. They would turn from their fear of what might happen if they get baptized, if they publicly profess Jesus. I pray, God, that there would be, in fact, baptisms that are as a result of the preaching of you, the word here in this church. We pray this for the glory of his name, for he alone is worthy. Amen.